Thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast again. Two episodes here, so kind of the juice, like, dive into the background. But you're unique because you're an ROTC commander, which I don't think I've had anyone on. There are a lot of people who listen to podcasts who might fit the demographic, who are either looking to join the military, do the the ROTC route. If you want to speak about the academy, you can. It's up to you, but I don't know anything about it. Sounds terrible. Um or someone who might be a mentor or a guide to someone who fits the demographic of the age bracket looking to join the military, which I think ROTC is a, not a bad way to go. But yeah, Juice, kind of, can you break, yeah, give me a little bit of perspective of what you do with the role, and then we'll jump a little bit more into ROTC. Yeah, for sure. So I, I applied for this program multiple times, like we talked about, and it was kind of like a payback. Like I, I wanted to you know, make an impact to where people who were coming in didn't have the same experience in ROTC that I had, where I was like kind of disgruntled by the time I got to the commissioning phase. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, I applied for that, the board, it's the officer, instructor and recruiting candidate list or whatever that you apply for. Um, and, and, and wanted to pay back that way. So I finally eventually get here. ROTC is largely unchanged from where you and I went through yeah. uh, the program. You know, I think it goes in, in waves of, of how long the program is, right? Right now we're in this phase where um, four years is what we would like. Three years is the minimum. There is no two-year program and there's no, no one-year program unless it's like a super specialized like lawyer or doctor type thing there is some one-year commissioning programs there but we require students for three years and so they've you know developed curriculum uh, for us to teach the students and uh, and and I would say that honestly in the role that I'm in here at North Carolina A&T three years is we are sprinting to get them across the finish line uh, with that three years. I don't think we could do it in less than three years right now. With that three years, they chop off. I mean, obviously they're missing a year, which I imagine the freshman year, again, I don't remember a lot of the curriculum, but I mean, that's kind of some of the, I mean, it's a lot of, all of it's blocking yeah, and tackling. So the, but the curriculum, I can talk to that. So the curriculum fresh, freshman year, that AS 100 year is a lot of uh, building block approach, obviously, yeah. right? It's teaching them how to wear the uniform. It's teaching them, how to salute, how to stand at attention, that kind of stuff. And then it does a lot of the history of the Air yeah. Force. So you don't even really get into like the leadership side until your sophomore year, um, if you're doing it by the book. We try and introduce some of that the freshman year to give them a, you know, like a leg up and, and start them thinking, you know, critically and, and ethically and morally, like the way that we want leaders to think. We start right. that early, but um, for the most part, the curriculum is is real, just 
specific to history and how to wear the uniform, that kind of stuff. And then the 200 year, um, you start to, it's their like field training prep year. And so it's starting to get into like how to lead small groups and, and how to do GLP, you know, group leadership projects, yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, we could go off on a tangent on how effective group leadership projects are, but um, we do a lot of them in ROTC. Yeah. Um, and then obviously uh, between the typical student between uh, sophomore and junior year, we'll go to field training, which is when you and I went through, actually, when you went through, how long was it? It was six weeks, I think. Does that sound right? Okay. I might yeah, know. No, there was I like think... a four week and a six week. And I think if you did, you know, if you did the freshman year and your sophomore year, you did the four week camp. If you missed your freshman year, you did the six week camp, I think. Okay. Yeah. So right now there is no like makeup at field training for the students. And so we have to make that all up at the detachment level. Gotcha. And it is a two week encampment. Oh, so that's good. We're passing off the unit just like in the fighter squadrons. Yep. yep. <laughs> and so what we used to do over those four weeks was, you know, kind of an evaluation of where they're at and what they do. And we, we are now trying to do that in a two week period. Okay. Um, I can't speak directly to it because I have not gone to field training since I've been here. Um, I missed it last year and then I missed it this year again. So dang. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I do have, you know, my, like my captain uh, is down there right now, and he's definitely feeding me info on, like, the worthiness of it. And he honestly came back and kind of is starting to change my mind a little bit. He is saying that there is some worthiness to it, and he thinks that there's some good goodness to having them down there for that two weeks. So, I'd be curious. I do want to talk about field training because I think when you and I went through it, it was predominantly you marched around all day long, mm -hmm. you ran, you did PT, and then you marched and you marched and you marched and you marched. Uh, which I have my opinions on marching around and it's utility. I definitely did a lot of marching on active duty. Oh wait, no, I didn't, but um, <laughs> it's like, I'm doing about face. How do I do that? Um, so backing all the way up the, the programs, you know, three year, four year, when I went through, I do remember guys on a two year program, they were doing their masters somewhere in career fields or with a degree like in electrical engineering, which seems like it's always in demand in the air force. Other ones, not as much. It is there. It seemed like that time too, they were still trying to get more bodies in, you know, this is the 2002, 2003, 2004 timeframe. Everything is kind of surging and a lot of dollars are flowing. I guess there's not a demand to find people. Is that a true statement? Yeah. So right now, it, we're in this really weird spot right now. Um, we definitely drew down the amount of people we were allowing to get through during COVID, right? Because the retention, retention was at an all-time high yeah. uh, in the Air Force. And so they're like, oh, we don't need as many people. And so they pull, you know, like standard Air Force, we either go idle or max AB. Yeah, no in between. I mean, we all know that they're actually trying to find the middle sweet spot there, but it's really hard to do yeah. when you've got a force this big and so many moving parts and pieces. Um, they cut quite a bit this last, not this year, but the year before my first year, when we were trying to get, when we were doing the enrollment allocation process, we were submitting the sophomores names up and air force, you know, they draw a line and go, everyone below this line doesn't get to go to field training and doesn't get to go on in the program. Or you can give one more year of college in the GMC, the general military count, uh, uh, council. I think that's what it stands for. Yeah. Um, Acronyms. GMC. Yeah. There you is. go. Yeah. It's freshman <laughs> sophomores, underclassmen, if you will. Uh, 
you can give one more year as a 500 year and try one more time to become a POC or to go through field training. Yeah. Jumping to the POC. That's, t I mean, typical flow would be freshman, sophomore year, and then you would go to field training your third year. You'd be in the POC, the professional officer corps. Professional uh, officer corps. Yeah, look yep. at that. Look at that. I found an acronym. There we go. Come, those penguins yeah, are jumping yeah. back on. There's not, the iceberg <laughs> is not very big. So God knows what just fell off. That's really critical, but it's gone now. Yeah. Yeah. What's happening right now? Uh, so that would be like the normal flow, but what is the selection rate from, or what is the typical selection rate? And I'm sure it depends. Standard fighter pilot answer yeah. going from getting into field training. Cause you have to get that field training to move on and stay in contract and yada, yada, yada. Correct. Yeah. So like I said, two years ago, when I first got here and did the enrollment allocation that first year, the selection rate was real low. Like I can't, I don't know exactly what the stats were, but they, it was right around like the 55%. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's yeah super so low. we submitted 22 names and we got 10 back. Dang. And then there was some, uh, you know, drama that went along with it. Obviously, yeah. nationwide, I'm sure um, there was some politicking involved, but we, we magically found a couple more spots for people. And so we ended up getting, I think, two more after that. And so we ended up with 12 uh, that we submitted 22 for. We got 12. Now, was that, um, the, was that the average? Like, did you guys... Were you? I think we were really close to the average. Okay, yes. fair enough. Yep. So then we uh, fast forward one year and we've got this messaging now that we're putting out that's like, hey, this program is, I mean, we had to do special counselings for our freshmen and sophomores to say, even if you're on scholarship, this, this program is not guaranteed. Like it is all merit-based. And if you don't make the cut, you don't make the cut. And we will say thank you for volunteering and walk you out the door. And so I think with the combination of how, how big of a cut there was the year before, and then the way that we messaged it, you know, leading up to this enrollment allocation, because I don't think we selected that many more, but our selection, it was 82%. So we submitted less, right? Like, and yeah. so I think there was just less people. I think COVID played into it. I think the desire to serve played into it. I think, you know, just the economy being crazy like it was played yeah. into it. We, we see that like the economy is high and the, the desire to serve kind of drops. And then as the economy drops, the desire to serve, you know, starts to surge right. again. So um, we're just in a really weird spot right now. We're, we, we need people because I think people are going to start jumping ship again. Yep. hundred percent. Like the retention that we had, the false retention that we had from COVID, Wait, I think false is going to go away. What are you talking about? False retention. Yeah. And, and then now we have a less a population of people that's less desiring to serve. And so it's just kind of the, the mix of, you know, kind of a nightmare for the Air Force. And so we're, uh, I think what I'm hearing is that this is the first year in 75 years that we're not going to reach our recruiting goal. That's big for the Air Force because, like, the Air Force, it seems like it never has a problem recruiting. We have a recruiting service basically to funnel people in and obviously play along, but it's not like the Marines and the Army where they're scrapping to, to find people. Yep. It's usually the other way around. You would think after all of this, like and you're jumping, so the, the number, the percentage you're throwing out there, again, for those listening, if you're not catching on, that enrollment we're talking about is the middle, the summer between 
sophomore year and junior year going to field training, which is a requirement to go through field training, the uh, air quoted, you know, boot camp for, for officers that allows you to contract. And that really starts like that solidifies the path forward and you have to do it. The fact that jumping from like 54% to 82% back and forth, that's a lot of elasticity. And I know you mentioned there are variables and people are trying to figure this out. COVID is probably one of the big ripples in that. Sure. You would think that at this point, the stability that that number would fluctuate like, Hey, cause I mean, even when you talk about officer promotions, like, and there have been some big fluctuations, but inherently, like, you know, like, I don't know, major is going to be like an 85 to 92%. And it's always that year after year, like they have it kind of dialed in. So this is not something new, but the fact that it fluctuates so much and it, again, and again, this is just a snapshot, right? This is just my, right. Fair enough. You know, 700 days that I've been here. Um, but I, I just see a trend as, as and this summer, I'm seeing the same thing, you know, like I'm sitting back here, not going to field training. And so I'm the one that's doing all the recruiting events uh, in the area. And so I'm hitting all these like new student orientations for all the colleges that we have. And there just is, I mean, we, we talked to maybe three so four each time that, that and and a lot of a lot of people come up and they're like have you seen the new top gun you know like that's what they want to talk about and then they're like well thanks for your service and then they walk away <laughs> cool we're nailing it the yeah recruiting had a number general uh let i mean recruiting commander always has it which i'm going to butcher it but then, you know they said like in the 1970s 50 percent of americans had like an immediate family member that served mm-hmm. and then today i mean that number is like Again, don't quote me on this, but it's somewhere like 13. It's a 13%. It's abysmal. So trying to reach those people. But out of like the 4 million youth that hit the age bracket that would be qualified to serve, yeah, you can go ahead and chop that in half with, you know, people who are qualified, who don't have a Medically. medical disability, yeah, yeah, yada, yada, yada. And like it whittles down to like 90,000 people after you factor in, you know, grade point averages and then the propensity to serve. That's the pool you're digging for. And everyone is targeting that pool. It's kind of like the airlines right now. There's a pilot shortage and, you know, there's only 5,000 people qualified for all the airlines. A lot of applications in, but a lot of people who don't meet the qualifications. Like it's a, it's a small pool. Yeah, we talk. So the, I talk a lot with like the leadership of the universities because they, you know, they're concerned with our attrition rate. And I I keep telling them that our attrition rate is built in on purpose, right? Like it is the the way that the air force wants it right to get the most quality officers that they can get and so we have like and this is not an official number but it's got to be really close to about 85 percent attrition from start to finish which i feel is no like i'm if i remember like my class that started freshman year let's call i mean call it 20 of that 20 i want to say is like three or four of the original commissioned, commissioned. The rest, like yep. there a couple got sprinkled in the, you know, second semester, third and fourth semester. And then it was kind of set from there and it whittled down to like yep. 12 people graduating. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we so we aim to try and get like 40 or 50 freshmen. Yeah. So we can get close to like a 10 ish graduating class at the end. Um, but it's just tough. Like freshman year, we deal a lot with medical stuff. So they go through the Department of Defense Medical Evaluation Review, the Dodd-Murb. Uh, which is a four-letter word, and they go through 
and it, you know, like the, the military or the DOD sifts through their medical records and finds everything that happened to them as a child up to age 20. And you know, they ask additional questions. And I tell everyone that walks in here, I say, hey, don't, don't, do not be surprised if you are disqualified the first time through this process. Because we probably see like 50 to 60% of the cadets come back as disqualified immediately from Dodd-Murb. And then Dodd, we work through the request for more information or the additional medical information requests that they send us. And we probably get 50% of that 50%, so like another 25% through the process. Gotcha. But it's a good 25% right off the top that, you know, wow. is gone from the yeah. medical process. And, and the crazy part is I can walk across the hallway, some of the people who get disqualified from us, and hand them to the Army, a warm handoff to the Army, and go, this person was going to be a good cadet, but we disqualified them. And there is some stuff for the Air Force that we need them to be qualified in medically right. that they don't in the Army. But we, I've seen probably in my two years here, I've seen four or five good cadets that would have made good officers in the Air Force commission with the army it is funny uh again all these parallel like things just don't change um <laughs> because the joke was you would see guys who started with you they would get disqualified for whatever reason and then we always did a joint run every semester with the navy and the army and then you'd see them you'd with see, the yeah, they're just wearing a different uniform you know they just go walk <laughs> over to the army yeah, so yeah, yeah so medical medical is another or one of the big uh things that cuts people out of the program and then for us and i think other some other institutions across the nation the AFOPT the Air Force Officer Qualification Test um, is difficult to get past for for some people and so for those that don't know it's a standardized test it's like SAT style five and a half hours it has not changed since we took it you know 25 years ago um, maybe some stuff has changed but it's it I opened the book and I was like, yep, I remember this from 25 years ago. Same pictures, same right. A-10, you know, like yeah. <laughs> trying to determine what, <laughs> if it's coming at you or going away from you. Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, that kind of stuff. And then, um, so we, we work hard here um, to try and get through that process. The, it's a pass-fail on the verbal and the math portion. So the quantitative and the verbal is a pass-fail. And then if you want to be a pilot, you have to score a certain number on that uh, pilot section, you know. But if you don't want to be a pilot, then those sections don't matter. It's just the verbal and just the quantitative that matter for you. Gotcha. And in the other episode we recorded, you said that now it's – well, you, you used to be like you, had, you got two attempts. You had to space it out by six months. But that also has changed now too. That's changed, yeah. So you can take it once, and then if you fail it, you can take it again in 90 days. Okay. Um, and then after that, you have to go to your commander and try and pitch, you know, like, hey, I've read these books or I've done this study session and I've proven that I can, you know, improve because you see my improvement between the two. And uh, our region commander has the hammer on whether they get to take that test a third time. Interesting. And, and typically right now what we're seeing is it's a blanket approval uh, for people to take that a third time. Yeah. Depending on what the economy does here. You you know you alluded to I mean if the economy is not doing great it might have a lot more people flowing in that way um, if it just kind of keeps doing what it's doing I think the Air Force is going to have a big retention problem at least on the pilot side of the house and I know you mentioned you know I said like you, getting people who want to be pilots now is a struggle like it just doesn't seem like there's an interest uh, as much 
and you alluded to the fact that like that 10 year commitment is a big, mm-hmm. you know, a big dark shadow hanging over, you know, the minds of some people. It seems like there's going to be some more flux coming the way of, I mean, the DOD just in, in general, of like trying to get qualified applicants. Cause also too, like the things that the military needs, we talked to the air force, like you're talking space and cyber people who typically do that stuff. Now, this is, again, a generalization. Don't want to do PT tests. Don't want to have to wear a uniform and you know cut their hair and stuff like that. And again, that's a generalization. Not everyone fits that bill, but I know that's one challenge. Or the fact that, hey, you can go work for Microsoft and make 5X or whatever it might be. Correct, yeah. So the, 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 the thing that I've seen that I've kind of been impressed with is how the Space Force is, is trying to be different. They're yeah. trying to do some of that stuff differently. Um. North Carolina Anti signed a partnership with the Space Force. It's like one of eight universities, one of eight or nine universities that signed with the Space Force. Uh, it's an educational partnership agreement, and they're kind of trying to. The Space Force is looking at the way they do their, you know, their PME throughout their career, where they can send them to these uniform, uh, these different universities to get their masters and and do the research there. Yeah. Uh, and kind of target what they're trying to teach their officer course so it's kind of a it's a cool concept and then you, you alluded to the pt test they they're i think they're they're trying to do some things different with the pt test but it's really really difficult because most of that pt test is driven by dod right dod reg right so if you're in the dod which they are um you you're kind of hands are tied and you have to do some of the things that we do so that that part is just tough for I think all the services to try and really be innovative and change the way they do fitness. I think you're going to run into roadblocks, civil yeah. service. If you really want to be in the military, but don't want to do the PT test, there's GS. Right. Spots. Yeah. I saw the space where they were talking about doing something like with the, the ring you can wear to like monitor your fitness. You know, I mean, I got a you know, Garmin watch on my yeah. wrist. that's yeah. collecting a lot of data, uh, <laughs> <laughs> putting it out there. But, uh, uh, it's all good. Uh, you know, you, you incorporate some of that technology that man, maybe there's a different way of doing things, but again, there's always resistance. We talked about it in the, yeah. you know, the, your main episode there, the, the fact you're able to jerry rig something and modify an aircraft <laughs> for the entire theater. You're still, yeah, you're still, you know, hamstrung by the government process Yeah, and who's willing to take the risk, right? Like that's the whole leadership puzzle that we talk about in ROTC is like, where does the risk fall? And are they willing to take those, those risky, you know, moves? I don't know. So we'll see. It's the space force has been an interesting piece. Like they're like, Hey, you're now commissioning people into the space force. And I was like, okay, so are we teaching them anything different in the curriculum? And they're like, Nope, just continue to teach the same curriculum. Figure it out later. Yeah. yeah, I think they're going to eventually, there is like a Delta down at Maxwell that is trying to do, you know, some of the Space Force stuff. Our DO in the Southeast region just swapped out and he's going, he's walking across the hallway to the Space Force okay. ROTC thing that they're starting down there. Gotcha. And so I think probably in the next five years, we'll start to see some of that seep in that we'll have like, you know, maybe a branch off at some point and they learn different curriculum or I don't know. Um, uh, it's still so infant. I, I don't know how it's going to work. Yeah, it'll be interesting how it plays out. I want to back up real quick, um, talk a little bit like selection process. So we're talking about, again, going back to field training, that attrition rate or, you know, the 
acceptance rate of like 54% or whatever it was. I can't say the other number. Then uh, 80, what goes into selecting a student? Like what, what are they, what is it? I assume it's GPA, probably PT test. Um, yep, GPA, PT test. Um, they brought in this year for the first time AFOQT plays oh, a part. Yeah, so that's probably hitting a lot. So that like further exacerbates the problem. Like the ones that we are just getting across the finish line, they're yeah. then getting penalized um, when they try and go up for the CA board. But it is what it is, and it's it's what they decided to do. And so um, those three things, and then the commander's ranking is really the big rock that's going to get you there. And so that's you know we talked about subjective and objective. Um, that's the piece that I can weigh in on and go, hey, this person doesn't do as well PT-wise as this other person, but they are a way better leader than they are. And I can weigh in and kind of give them those extra points to get them across the finish line. Uh, gotcha. There. And so, yeah, I mean, and then it just goes up. We submit their names. The ones that we feel can, can get across that finish line, we submit their names and they go up and they compete nationwide. Uh, you know, with all 145 detachments and they just rack them from one to N and draw a number. This is how many we need. And and below the cut line is, is where it falls. There is some different stuff with like tech majors versus non-tech majors. And there is some stuff there has been in the past rated, you know, people who said, Hey, I'm rated and I'm rated qualified and I want to be rated. They may get a little bit of a, of a lower threshold to get through the process um if they do end up with a rated ea then they have to compete on the rated board that next year and so there's some nuances there but overall selection rate you know like i said one year is 55 and then the other year it was like 82 or something like that yeah. um, so we, we lie in there somewhere the, the reality is we're probably right in like the 75 percent you know, select rate of the people that should be nominated. Yeah. Okay. And you said, I mean, the school is tracking that attrition rate and I assume they're looking at kids who are dropping out of aerospace studies and say like, why, right. why do you have 30% of your students enroll the first year and then drop out? Is that kind of like their flag? Yeah, I think it, you guys does, it does in the education piece, you know, like, we go back to no child left behind. Like there are, there's that meant there yeah. is some of that yeah. mentality of like, well, we can't have people fail. Right. And I'm like, well, they're not failing academically. They're failing in the other things that we need them to do. Yes. You know? And so, yeah, I mean, I think just through education, the, the, the school, at least A&T, North Carolina A&T understands that attrition rate um, when it comes to the other things. If we were failing people out for academics, then they would get it. The AFLQT is, is a sticking point. They are wanting to help with that somehow, but you know, there's rules involved where we can't help the students so much. They have loosened up some a little bit. And so the, the students can now study in groups together, That's which okay. you weren't, you weren't allowed to study in groups before. And so that the air force is kind of looking at ways that they can maybe help some of the, um, you know, the populations that struggle with that test which is largely the population that we have in this attachment from, you know, underserved populations, minority populations, English as a second language populations, they struggle big time with that test. And so yeah. um, the school definitely has tried to help give us, they, they give us like an SAT prep course. It's through Kaplan and it's free for our students. They sign up and it's online and they can take this test, you know, repeatedly just to learn how to take tests okay. to hopefully do better on that AFOQT. 
And then what was what we were talking about how the how you get through the process for EA. So those those are the big things that they look at, and then it goes up, and the Air Force cuts where they cut, and then we counsel and say. You know, typically, if I if I put their name up for that process for the EA process, and they don't get through it, and they have the ability to extend their college a year, I will offer them a 500 spot and see if they want to extend their college one year and and retry the next year. Um, but if they don't get themselves qualified medically or they can't pass the PT test, I typically don't. You know, I don't want to waste their time and I don't want to waste our time either. Well, if they get that 500 slot, do they repeat? their sophomore year in ROTC, or is it like keep going in track and then the last year you're like hanging out? I think it's a little bit different at each detachment. What we used to do before I got here was they they went back and they basically joined the 200 crew that was incoming and, and re-assimilated themselves into that team. We were getting 0% of our 500s through this process because they were basically like, retrograding their leadership back to the 200 level and having to relearn everything. And so I've challenged our cadet wing commander and I say, hey, every time we have like the interviews for the cadet wing commander, I say, hey, these people are going to be your 500s next year. What are you going to do with them that's going to make them better? And so we've challenged our, our POC to kind of, you know, stretch those 500s. And, you know, we created a position this last semester for one that was an intel officer. Okay. And so this this dude worked directly with one of the like the OG maybe the ops group commander, uh, the cadet ops group commander, and a cadre member to develop intel briefs. You know, like the collateral level off Google yeah. style. But like he was really stretching his knowledge base to like learn about threat countries and that kind of stuff. And then he was up like presenting in front of the entire cadet wing the whole time and he crushed it i mean his yeah. leadership like you saw it like skyrocket during his 500 year and he got through he's going to field training this nice. summer and so i think that's probably the better answer for those 500s is to like figure out something to do with them rather than just retrograde them back right. to 200 year hey i just need you to tread water for another year basically yeah. like <laughs> it's not really going to push anyone interesting and i imagine what are you guys seeing out of what is a typical commissioning class size and where are they going career-wise? Career so for ours, uh, it's funny. We can get into a RAND study that's out right now. But um, for ours, we've seen, since I've been here, we've seen about 10 each year. Okay. A couple in the winter time frame will graduate, you know, like at their four-and-a-half-year mark they'll graduate that counts for that fiscal year. And then we'll graduate probably, we graduated just eight here in May. So that got us to 10 okay. uh, this semester. We had a couple seniors fall out. We would have had like 12 or 13, but is what it is. We got 10. Um, and that's what our, you know, the DOD challenges each detachment to, to graduate 10, which would get us to our 1500-ish that we need. Yeah. Um, now a lot of detachments don't get there and we haven't in the past. Um, I, I don't really pay attention to the numbers. It's one of those things where if I, if I don't have quality people to put through, I'm not going to, you know, commission them. So, um, what do we see for career fields is kind of a smattering large engineering program here at North Carolina A&T. And so if you're a mechanical engineer or a, um, electrical engineer, you're going to end up being an engineer. 
okay. either like a program manager or developmental engineer type stuff. Um, and then we have a good bit of people going to like CE. Like we have architectural engineers uh, out of this college that we, we just sent one to be a CE officer. Um, we typically have one or two pilots okay. out of that group, so like 10%. Um, I would like to see more, like 30 or 40%. And I think we're, we're going to get there in the coming years. I, I may not see it come to fruition, but I think we'll probably see three or four pilots um, in the next year. Well, it's such so. a small pool, like the swing between 20% and 40%. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty – it seems fairly reasonable. I feel like that's, yeah. again, my commissioning class. I mean, maybe it was like 12, something similar. And yep. I think we had like three guys who get pilot slots. Some follow-ons. And, and honestly, we're all over the place when it comes to careers. We sent one to missiles. We sent one to uh, contracting. We sent one to force support. I mean, yeah. we're literally all over the place. Maintenance, logistics. I mean, so it, it's kind of just a smattering. It's interesting. Uh, one piece, I'm surmising that you, since you said you really don't care about the numbers, that you, you don't play that game. I do remember I we probably had a similar parallel with ROTC. I, I really enjoyed it for the first three years, and then we got a guy, uh, the Commandant of Cadets, who I didn't have a lot of respect for. Maybe I was a little young, but also today I don't think I would want to hang out with him. Again, it was the filing cabinet of not, what not to do. Um, wonder where he is today. Uh, but the um, – I'll say the, the professor of aerospace studies, I remember I had a buddy who figured out he could commission into the reserves and he wanted to go fly C-17s. Mm-hmm. Was like, what? I was like, what is that? Little yeah. did I know when I showed pilot training, here's a little secret that people go to the Garden Reserve and they know what they're going to fly when they show up. Yeah. Uh, there's a little bit more to it, but um, the professor, he was, he was vehemently opposed to it. Supposedly, it was because it was going to ding, ding the numbers. He was going to have... Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah, He's not going to get his active duty numbers. We don't, I mean, they, they send us a thing every year and it says like, hey, your, your detachment's not viable because we don't meet the minimums for, right. and, and it's weird because we'll meet it for that year, but they look at a five-year average. And so if you don't average over five years in one of the categories to be viable, then you're not considered viable. And, you know, it's it, it can be used. I, I've looked at it as just a tool that I can use to kind of, uh, pitch with the leadership of the universities to go like, hey, we need your support a little bit more in this area, or we can use your support here. Look, the Air Force is looking at this, and they're they're really looking at our program because we're not viable, that kind of stuff. And so, but my my leadership up the chain uh, on our ROTC has said repeatedly, like, do not chase those numbers. Yeah, it's good to hear. So, I'm more- it, it's I think it's a good tool, and I hope they keep doing it because the the university cares about it. Yeah, I mean, I imagine the university is, is getting money. However, the I would say, I'm, I'm going to guess that the typical relationship with ROTC and academia, like it, there's probably some oil and water and tend to fall on different spectrums. And again, that's a generalization, but I saw it a little bit at, tech, at Georgia Tech, like, but Georgia Tech, very technical school, like North Carolina A&T. Um, it was a little more right-leaning, so it was a little bit, I think, a little bit less re- Resistance. It's not like UCLA. Like I heard some, you know, stories. Yeah, I think I think it depends on which university, but I think largely academia is, you know, not super educated on 
the military. Yeah, that's. And, and so that that part has been was one of my big surprises when I got here, and I would talk to people on this campus. That, I mean, like, oh, the ROTC, the club, you know, like it, no clue. Yeah. that we actually have a curriculum and North Carolina a students get a minor from our program. And like, we are, I'm not an idiot because <laughs> I don't have a PhD, you know, like right. I don't have a doctor in front of my name. And so it's just like they, their ability to like fathom that we serve and our career is military and we educate ourselves just like any other career field educates themselves. And we are relatively smart people critical thinkers, we can, you know, think through problems. I kept, you know, through the COVID piece here, I kept going across to the army, <laughs> uh, PMS, she, you know, she was like in logistics, I think in the army, or I can't remember what she did. The, the one that's in there right now is the army, but like we were, you know, knee deep in the COVID, like, you know, just setting up tents and testing facilities and all that kind of stuff here on campus. And it was, it was a struggle to watch. And I, I kept saying to her, I'm like, they know that we deal with like crisis and like all that kind of stuff yeah. all the time in the military. They could probably come down and be like, hey, how would you do this or what? Nothing. No, no, no questions asked. No like inquiries of like, hey, have you ever had experience with setting up a, you know, a contingency operation somewhere? And we're like, yes, we, oh, no, you don't want our opinion. Yeah. So it's just, it's, that's part of the frustrating piece is that we have to continuously tell people like, I'm not an idiot. I, I actually am educated and I can, you know, do things that you can do just because you've read a lot more books than me. Right. Uh, so it, that, that part has been a challenge and, and, you know, I think it's going to, stay i think whoever sits in the seat next is going to have that same challenge uh, and and maybe it's a process to get this person out of the office and meet people and and spread goodwill that's like one of those things you know it's uh you know walking a mile in someone's shoes like you never really fully understand it you know until yep. you do it but um i can i can see that and we you know bounce all the way back to the exposure that americans have to someone who served in the military obviously that number has just Drop drastically, and you probably could say that percentage was already low for maybe someone who uh, has a propensity to go pursue a PhD and just do academia. Like maybe, yeah. Maybe not. So I I have a pretty good story. So we talked a little bit about me being a white male on an HBCU, but like <laughs> I showed up and it was it was like it was pretty chaotic because no one was around. Everyone was working from home. I was trying to like get my feet wet and, and meet people. And so everything was over zoom. And there's like, if there's not already barriers for me, now we've got the zoom barrier. Yeah. And so like I, my direct boss here at the uh, university, me and her from, from like day one, there was just some friction, but over the course of about a year, we have like really gotten to a good place. And she is like one of, now she's one of the most educated on the military people on this campus. And she's going from her position, she's leaving me, which is kind of painful, but like she's going to be the Dean of the engineering department, which is a good thing for us. I think now she's like super engaged and wanting to learn about the military. And now she's sitting in one of like the most technical engineering departments yes. in our uh, area. Um, but her story is awesome. She like 
dedicated herself to learning about this program and about the Army program. She's going, the Army has a program where they can take professors from the universities and go push them out of airplanes and parachute and do the stuff that like the cadets are doing. And so she is going uh, to Fort Benning, I believe, oh, geez. to jump out of airplanes. Which is like, she said to me, she's like, this is so far outside of my comfort zone. She's like, but I feel like I have to do it just because I've sat in the seat and I've, you know, dealt with the ROTC piece. And and so that, that I I would say is like one of, if I leave here tomorrow, that will be one of my biggest wins is like gaining her trust and educating her on the process. And she actually seeing the benefit after she did, I don't believe that she saw the benefit before uh, me and the, the PMS really dedicated time to educating her. Was that just constant uh, interaction and asking for meetings and kind of sh- if there's an event going on, bringing her by type deal? It was, yeah. We, you know, we kept her, I, you know, it was one of those, like, she was not a micromanager, but you know how you deal with micromanagers, you just feed them information. And so, like, <laughs> that's what I, we kind of sat down, me and the Army sat down and we're like, we just need to feed her information of things that we're struggling with and, and whatever. And then we set up a monthly meeting with me and the PMS and the uh, her and we just it was just like a staff like a stand-up basically like the weekly stand-up that you see at a fighter wing where you know people bring information to the boss and go hey here's the stuff that we're dealing with and anything that they can help with they they kind of help with and she was that person for us so she I mean she got us money she got us money to finish our flight simulator so we got a VR flight simulator in the building now and the cadets are using it on the regular, like they're setting up a curriculum to like learn what a Cessna does and how it turns and all that kind of the physics behind airplanes. And then she also got us the podcast equipment and I'll send you, I forgot to send you a picture, but I'll send you a picture of our podcast equipment. It's, it's pretty awesome looking. That's Uh, legit. We're let to yet to record in it, but uh, I think that's coming in the next month or so. Yeah, that's cool. I think you know you probably have some relations with it. Your fighter squadron commander um, and demo. The the my parallel with that was demo. Like that's a resource drain on a fighter wing. Like I had three jets, a bunch of maintainers that were all chopped away from the op squadron and the maintenance squadron. And the way I felt like we got around that is like we involved the commanders. Like you know as much as possible, throwing them information. Anytime I did a show, I mean, it was a whole litany of pictures and storytelling of like, Hey, you know, why this is important. And then constantly harassing them to get in the backseat, you know, to include the ACC a three, you know, get the two star in the backseat where they, they start getting that, that buy-in and they see it and, you know, they feel like they're a part of it. And then when something breaks, you at least have a little top cover. Cause it's a, it's a pain for everyone, right? Like no one's happy right now. But hey, this jet's you know halfway across the country, and we got to send a truck and a bunch of other maintainers to go fix it. Like getting that buy-in from adversarial leadership is not the right term, right? But they're yeah. managing a lot of other things and have a lot of other priorities, and you just got to be the squeaky wheel so you get some grease. Yeah, for sure. I you know as a squadron commander, we had a great group of fighter squadron commanders at Luke, and our dedication was to involve as many of the support side and maintenance commanders as we could, just so that we had, you know, like we had a camaraderie with them too, so that if we did need something, they could step up and help us out. And, you know, I think my support background helped a little bit with that too, where, you know, the very first time we had like a whiskey with the mayor with all the squadron commanders together, I think mother set it up in the three tenth. 
we went down there and there was the services or the force support squadron commander in there with us. And, you know, like I was able to say, Hey, I used to be services. Yeah. <laughs> and it. that like gave us a link and we were, we actually connected and, and became pretty good friends after that. So, I mean, it's just, I think the little things and, and you, you hit it on the head, like the demo piece, it was like your very first command, honestly, yeah. because you're out on your own, you're taking risk, you're doing the things that a commander does. Um, and so that networking and that, you know, being the squeaky wheel and, and making sure that people are on your side, yeah, uh, I think is a huge piece to making it work. And so that's, it's no different here. The tough part with us is we have 10 universities that we have to have on our side. Yeah. And so I, you know, I spent a bulk of my time, you know, trying to network here on the campus of A&T because it is the host university, they do give us our budget and they, it is, a, it, we are here for a reason, right? Like it is the largest HBCU in the nation. And that's why, that's why we're here is to help diversify our officer core and help get, you know, what needed to happen a long time ago happen uh, in the future. But at the same time, we wouldn't survive with just North Carolina A&T students. And so right. we do pull from Elon University and High Point University and some other ones around here. And so I've had to step out a little bit and, you know, I did a webcast with the uh, president of Elon University, who used to be the chancellor of, or not the chancellor, she was the provost of the Citadel. And so okay. she had that military connection there. And she's been just an awesome advocate for us out at Elon. It's just been an interesting, I mean, it's so different. It's so different to be part of like academia and like try and integrate as a person wearing a military uniform on uh, uh, campus has just really been cool. It's basically like a fighter squadron, but just different. <laughs> yeah, way different. <laughs> I, I don't know if I would say that, but yeah, it's, it's definitely different. <laughs> uh, that's I, we didn't talk about like the crosstown aspect, but you're referring those to other schools. Like I assume it's still called crosstowns, but crosstowns. Yeah, yeah, smaller, not smaller universities which might not qualify for an ROTC unit, but they can students can still register and drive across town for. Yep leadership lab yeah and, it's crazy one of my one of our cross towns is wake forest which is a big name right yeah that's interesting i can't get anyone i've that's like been my one one of my objectives with the cross towns is like let's get a student from wake forest how far away how far of a drive is that it's like 45 minute drive yeah but it's it's like only it's like two miles further than winston-salem state and we get people from there yeah interesting so it's just i think it's just uh how do I break into that university and the campus and like get our name out there? I don't even think people know that they can be part of this program. That's probably a big piece of it. Like, you, you know, you don't have it on campus. So you don't see cadets walk around in uniform occasion. No one, you know, the fraternity brother doesn't have a fraternity brother who's in ROTC. Yep. So you just never, yeah. It goes back to our previous podcast. If you're not surrounded, you know, by an environment of people doing X, Y, or Z, like most likely you're not going to end up doing X, Y, or Z. Yep. Like I'm not yeah. a doctor, nor could I have been, but I didn't grow up around a bunch of doctors. I would have just been yep. the, you know, the reject from the group, but I didn't. Yeah. Know and then I don't know if you want to talk about rated board stuff. So like further on in the process. So um, for students that get through that enrollment allocation process, their junior year is a big year for them. They compete for uh, uh, rated spots during that year. And then at the end of that year, they submit, their non-rated line jobs, uh, basically their dream sheet of where they want to, what they want to do in the Air Force. And rated and is now going to be pilot, WIZO. Uh, pilot, CISO, ABM, uh, UAS. Okay. 
Is there anything else in it? We had Intel in it at some point. Like, no, Intel's yeah, not in yeah, it. Yeah, so it was weird. Yeah, Intel's one of the non-rated line. I think I think that's it. So and so, yeah, they compete for that, and uh, you know there is there is a a desire, and I don't know if it's because I'm here talking about doing pilot stuff. There is a desire for people to serve. Some people are qualified, some are not. One of the things that I was really surprised by is how easy it is now to get through the LASIK process. And so if your eyes yeah. are not perfect, which everyone thinks you have to have perfect eyes to get in the Air Force and to be a pilot, I've seen, since I've been here, I've seen two people go through the LASIK process and two people get qualified and two people get pilot spots out of it. Well, they go do it on their own. I assume it's they like a waiver. They go do it on their own. They pay for it. Yep. And so one of them did it um, between the, the rated board and the supplemental rated board, okay. which happens wow. their senior year. They did the, the LASIK and they got qualified. And another guy, which I think is better timing, he went to field training came home and got LASIK done right away. And then he had 90 days to get requalified in the eyes of Dodmerb. That's a soft requal. And then six months from the time that you get uh, out of that surgery is when you're actually rated qualed. Um, and then you compete on that rated board. The, so if anyone's listening and wants to do this, uh, there's, I know there's like a lot of paperwork that goes into it and then documentation probably. So like it behooves you not to just go get it before talking to someone probably who is correct. Who's yeah. Done talk it. to your cadre. They, everyone knows kind of the game to play and how to get your eyes where they need to be. Um, and it just depends on how much money you want to spend. Right. So like there's PRK and that's one way to do it. And then there's LASIK and that's probably the quicker way to do it. Yeah. My wife just got it beginning of May and, Two days later, like full up, just has to do eye drops to like help out every now and then. And then like a week later, no issues and got a big discount because my dad got a LASIK done 20 years ago in the same clinic. So <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, discount. yeah, you're uh you're returning or you're a uh, referral. She's like, yeah, okay. It was like, take it. I mean, the, yeah, the so that part was, that part was really surprising for me that, um, because you know, when we were going through, there was no option yeah, yeah. to like fix your eyes. If you didn't have the eyesight, you were unqualified and you did not get to compete for it. Now I, you know, I, I had the luck, I guess, to, to get a waiver once I got an active duty. So like, I wouldn't have been able to go pilot out of pilot or out of ROTC anyway, because my eyes are so bad. I never got LASIK, but I got a uh, waiver, indefinite waiver for my eyes, and I just wear contacts. Okay. Because, I mean, I, I had buddies who did PRK, and they went through the process, and that was kind of a, a challenge. But, um, yeah, it's awesome that, that you can – because the technology exists, you can get someone who can see, and turns yeah. out, like, their eyeballs aren't going to explode. So, that's great. Um, what? Yeah, so then uh, the non-rated line job, obviously, is all the other – things that we didn't talk about that aren't rated. And then uh, they, you know, we look at this huge document called the AFOCD and it has all these requirements for each AFSC. And, okay. you know, it's the, the form 53 that they fill out should populate what they are qualified for based on their degree. Um, but there is some work that we do to try and get people qualified. You know, like if we see a degree where someone has taken all the classes needed for a weather degree but they're getting a chemistry degree then we can kind of fight for them to be able to apply for that weather okay uh, position and that's kind of what we do is we just look at each person's degree and go like hey what do you want to do 
And then we go to the Air Force and go, how do we get to yes for this person to be able to try and compete for these jobs? And then they compete for them with everyone nationwide, and, and it comes out all at the same time. We're still waiting on them right now for our rising seniors. When So they find out like pretty early on their senior semester, their first semester, senior year, what they get? Yeah, I think we're trying to get to a spot where the NRL comes out at the end of their junior year. Okay. But we just like – it's just with COVID and like the staff being – really undermanned i believe i think is part of the problem i just don't think they can churn through that uh, as quickly as they would like and so now we're in the middle of the summer and we're still waiting on uh, nrl release and space force release so people competed to go into the space force and we're waiting on those numbers too i know we got to wrap up here soon but i do so if there are any salient points you want to throw across but i'm curious the rated board and the non-rated board what goes into those as far as selecting the individual or how they get racked and stacked, uh, you know, against everyone in the nation? So rated is kind of like the EA process. They look at, you know, all the different things, your grade point average. Um, they definitely look at degrees maybe for some of that. So some people have rated tech EAs. And so they are kind of put into a different category, but um, for the most part, it looks like, you know, do good on your PT test, do well in school, and then get a good commander's ranking, and you'll be sitting pretty well for that rated board. So, do you, I mean, do you know if, because um, when I showed up at tech, I was going to do civil engineering, and then I was like, hey, what do I need to be a pilot? I was talking to a casual lieutenant who was doing a master's in international affairs. He's like, you just need a good GPA. I was like, well, I wasn't very good at calculus in high school. Probably <laughs> not going to be good at calculus at Georgia Tech. So I well, and then the other part that goes into it is the Pixum. So the pilot uh, Pixum score. Yeah, the yep, Pixum. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I it's think a Pixum like score. there's like an acronym within the acronym <laughs> right. for that one. Yeah, uh, fair enough. Um, it basically just says how it's like a score that's generated from the TBAS test, which is the yep TBAS test. Yep. <laughs> Battery aviation aptitude. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Aptitude. Yes. yes. Um, yeah, I'm terrible with those. Uh, I just It's so funny because I just look at people who want to be rated, and I'm like, hey, what does the TBAT stand for? And they're like, yep, this is what it stands for. That, yeah. That's all. <laughs> um, I don't need to know it. So the TBAS test, which is a series of, like, I don't know, exercises in memorization and, like, kind of hand-eye coordination stuff yep. is what I remember it. I have not seen it since I did it back 25 years ago. Yeah, interesting. Okay. I just remember like the, the rudder pedals were really rinky-dink and they kind of scooted all over the floor and it, I didn't feel like it was a fair <laughs> assessment of my hand-eye coordination. <laughs> yeah. And I still hear cadets talking about that today. Uh, then your pilot score in the AFOQT, right? So that yep. part goes into it. And then um, flight hours is the other part. And so we try and maximize as many people as we can, get them through as many flight hours as we can uh, through some of that you can fly scholarship money that I talked about before. Um, but all of that combines with commander's ranking, GPA, and PT scores to kind of give uh, an OM, if you will, an order of merit. Flying hours, when we were going through, I remember if you, I had my private pilot's license, but the difference of points between having your private pilot's license and 10 hours was negligible, but having zero hours and 10 was a big deal. So is it, Still the so same. they just changed these rules again, and I am not super smart on them, but they go, it used to go from like zero to 200 hours. Yeah. And you could something. go all the way to 200 hours and continue to increase your Pixum score all the way up there. Yeah. Now they've maxed it at 60. 
because they did some study and said, you know, above 60 and between 60 and 200, like the likelihood that person does better in pilot training is, you know, minimal. Right? Yeah, that's fair. They, they say the, the most bang for your buck is that one or zero hours to 40 hours. And so they now maximize the points increase between zero and 40. And then they, they go up between 40 and 60, but not as much as they do between zero and 40. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that seems. And they're in five, they're in five hour increments, I believe. So zero to five, six to 10, 11 to 15 are the increments. Gotcha. Yeah. That seems to make sense. And then for the non-rated board, again, that's, that's really essentially just, is this guy or gal qualified to do this job? And if there's, hundred people that want to be weathermen, there's yeah. still a breakdown. Yeah, they of... just rack and stack all and all within there. And I've seen really good results. Everyone's gotten something, you know, on their top one through four ish for the most part. Um, I did have someone put missiles down like a, to be a missileer as her sixth choice. And I was like, okay. I'm like, you understand that you're probably going to get this. And she's like, well, I'm going to put it down anyway. I'm like, okay. And she got it because, they're so undermanned. And so if you put it anywhere, one through six, they're going to select you for it. And so Ugh. that's where she's at. And she's happy with it now. Yeah. She was just a little shocked that she got that. So Wearing a seatbelt in an underground silo. Do you know they yeah. wear seatbelts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, she's the first one on active duty, too. She graduated May and commissioned May and was on active duty in May. Wow. Which, because is that, are so they delaying? Like, I got delayed. I was supposed to get delayed four months from commissioning to start. And it was like the first year they did that. And then I got bumped up to like, I waited to 31 May because the Academy graduated on the 30th. But then subsequently I had, you know, guys who were two years behind me that had a year off after commissioning. Yeah, we're, still, we're still in that pain train right now. So typically it's between six and 12 months. That's crazy. From commissioning. Yeah. And, and there's nothing we can do about it. It's crazy. You know, like you can compete people to go be a gold bar recruiter, which will pull on them on active duty right away. And yeah. we got one of those this year, but for the other people, like I just am now sending in, I think in May I sent one of the people I commissioned last May. She you, just came on active duty. You know, the Moraine's humble opinion. Again, what doesn't matter. I went, I was casual for 15 months down at Moody. So the air force is paying a salary. The squadron put me to good use. I learned a lot of stuff. You learn, I mean, it, it was good for me to go do. But I mean, I feel like it is a foul to put these kids, you graduate and then, oh, by the way, go find a job for 12 months. And oh, yeah, yeah who's going to someone who's going to employ yeah. you for six months? Like what, what, you know, what plan is that going to happen? Um, yeah, it's pretty painful. But there's honestly, I, you know, when I got here, I was like, there's got to be something we can do. And everyone's like, I mean, it's been that way since like 2009, probably. And yeah, you know, the the ship has left the port and turned that thing around. Yeah, it's it's painful. It, you know, it is what it is. I tell the ones that can afford it, I'm like, this is your chance. Go backpack Europe. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like do something with your life. Yeah, that see, you're never gonna get a chance to do after you get on active duty and get married and have kids. Like, do it now. Yeah, save save your money to go through RC. I assume they get health care. Are the option to buy health care? There's can, the say, option to have uh, Tricare. Okay. So at least they get while that. While they're in the IRR, while they're waiting to go on active duty. But they have to pay for it. Classic. Yeah. I mean, it's worth it if you, I mean, you, you want to get there. But again, that's, yeah. mm, Air Force needs to do a better job with that. 
yeah that's my opinion i don't know i don't know how to fix that problem i think it's just a capacity to put people through training problem i think i think the problem stems like all the way through so i I don't know i don't know how to fix it yeah if you're doing that yeah that's probably one f-22 flying hour so yeah different different pool of money well juice i know you got to run here i really appreciate the time is there anything else you'd like to just hit on real quick before we part ways no man thank you again for letting me come back on i got done with that first one i was like oh there's so much about rotc that i didn't get to say there's i mean all right yes like when we do this uh i figure we record just over an hour for the first one i mean yeah you're trying to capture all this stuff in one hour, like, Hey, surmise your career of 20 years in, in one hour. And, uh, we'll just, we'll hit the highlights. I mean, we're just scratching the surface here. So, I mean, again, you're not the first person that we've, we've done this. And honestly, I think, I know people, there's gonna be a, again, a specific group that want to hear it, but honestly, the things we've talked about today, um, you know, it's kind of broad brush that even if you weren't, if you're not looking to go to ROTC or even have someone who's going to ROTC, there are things that, that tie and weave through what the Air Force currently is and how how it's operating that's interesting so yeah yeah i appreciate it all right man take care yeah have a good rest of the summer get some get some good vacation in and talk to you soon we'll do see ya see you buddy